Welcome back to the Gutsiest Brands podcast, the show built around understanding the DNA of gutsy brands by talking to the world's most innovative brand leaders. At GutCheck, we make it our business to understand brands. And over the years, we've learned that some brands are just gutsy. So what makes a gutsy brand? We've identified four primary criteria that help us measure a gutsy brand. We feature brands that are empathetic, pioneering, bold, and demonstrate the power of and, those that see opportunity where others force trade-offs. When we find a brand leader that we think embodies gutsiness, we invite them to the show to explore what makes them so successful, what drives them every day, and to get their perspective on other gutsy brands out in the world. On this week's episode, GutCheck CRO Jess Gedeke had the chance to speak with Suda Ranganathan, the Director of Product Marketing on the Talent Solutions Business at LinkedIn. Listen in while Jess and Suda discuss the importance of compassionate leadership, why making room for internal mobility is essential, and what exactly the recipe for a great leader is. Kick back and enjoy another episode of the Gutsiest Brands podcast. Suda, I am so excited to have you here on the Gutsiest Brands podcast. I mean it. I've been really looking forward to this conversation. And uh, for our listeners to know, Suda and I have worked together in the past. And so I was reflecting on how much I learned from you back then. And back then it was more about product innovation and you know, driven from your time at PG. But since then, we've had the opportunity to interact and I've learned even more from you uh, in the world of talent. So these are topics I'm really passionate about and I'm genuinely happy to have you here. I'd love for you to start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your background. Well, let me just say, it's also such a pleasure to be here with you, Jess. We worked together many years ago, as you said, and I was really excited a few months ago when we had the chance to be on a panel together. Your questions were so thoughtful. I figured if Jess is hosting a podcast, I want to be on that one because her questions <laughs> are going to be so great. Uh, so that's that's you. why I'm here. Uh, some, uh, a little bit of intro about myself. I have been... <laughs> in the marketing field for about 17 years now. That's my entire career. I actually started as a market researcher at Procter & Gamble, a CPG company, and then made the sort of slow transition to working at a vendor where Jess, you and I met each other, moving then to financial services and tech with PayPal, and then going into mainstream tech, which is where I am now at LinkedIn. The interesting thing is all my life, I've been really interested in brands. I knew very early on when I went to do business school that I wanted to be in marketing at some point. And I, I still remember it was the way that brands kind of captivate you with their storytelling. And they appeal not just to your head, but also to your heart and your gut. And it, there's something fundamentally inside of you that changes. I still feel that magic when I see great marketing today. So like one part of my greatest loves is marketing and brands. But over the last five or six years that I've been at LinkedIn, I've developed another great love and I call it talent. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's this realization that the greatest marketers and the greatest leaders in marketing are only partially successful because they have the competencies to do marketing really well. But really, all of their success usually comes from being fantastic leaders and fantastic people to work with. And so how do you bring out the best in other people? How do you create powerful teams that work well towards common objectives? That's another big passion area of mine. So my two great loves are really marketing and leadership or talent development. And I'm hoping we'll get to talk about both consumer brands and employer brands today. 
We will. And I'm thrilled about those two topics coming together. And um, I, I just can't wait to dig in. So let's do that. So as you said, you know, you have such rich experiences across these different industries. And so I love how to this conversation, you can bring not just a consumer centric viewpoint to the discussion. A lot of our podcast guests, that is their focus is on, is on the consumer, but, uh, but also how companies can demonstrate the characteristics of gutsiness and how employers and talent interact and collaborate. So I'd love to start with one of my favorite characteristics of gutsy brands, which is leading with empathy. And I think this is something we could talk about all day. In your view, what do some of the best organizations do to successfully demonstrate empathy to their employees? What are some of the fundamentals? I think a culture of listening, it starts with that. Often what happens in organizations is the organization is so clear about their own values and what they believe in. They forget that their values are really an amalgamation of the people that work there. And that unless you're constantly listening to your people, you can't understand if those values are being operationalized on a daily basis or not. And so I think a culture of listening where you're truly willing to listen to what your employees are trying to tell you, for that to be possible, for your employees to want to tell you things, the second thing that's really important is a culture of psychological safety. It means there's a foundation where people know they can say things, they can give you feedback, and there's not going to be retaliation retaliation that's either explicit or implicit. And you know how implicit retaliation is the worst of them all. Uh, you, you get like a met expectations or didn't need expectations in your review and you're not really told why you don't get the best roles, you don't get the best projects, etc. So I think psychological safety is like the next big pillar. And I think the third pillar of active empathy is uh, you're not only listening, you're not only creating an environment where it's possible to listen, but you're also closing the loop with action. What I mean by that is, you know, like every time there is a culture survey that happens in an organization, people provide feedback. Let's say they feel safe giving that feedback. Let's say you're listening to the feedback. Unless you do something about the feedback, unless you prioritize fixing the issues that were outlined, I don't think anyone's going to have enough faith to then come back and give you that feedback again. So you erode trust when you're not able to close the loop. And so I think closing the loop is the third part of what I call empathetic leadership in organizations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that action piece is so important um, and it shows that you're listening and that's when people feel seen and heard, right? When there's, there's action that comes from their input. I think that's, that's really important. Um, the, the psychological safety part, when we were on that panel, you had talked about that as well. And I've been thinking about it ever since then. What are some of the ways that you can create psychological safety, or maybe what are some of the ways that, you know, organizations go wrong? You know how we're entering an era of uh, everything is great. Let's look at the silver lining everywhere. Um, Toxic positivity. That's yes. what you call it, right? Yeah, which yes. I felt so like that's, I do that. I know that I do that. So, <laughs> <laughs> and the more we're on social platforms, like, like a LinkedIn, it's a professional network. People come there to talk about successes. They come there to talk about their IPOs. We talk about a lot of wonderful, positive things there. And even when people are getting laid off on mass right now, look at the tenor of their posts. It's very much, I'm still really grateful. It was still a great place to work for. Well, you know what? You're allowed to be sad about the fact that you just got laid off. And, and so culturally, I think we built up such a premium around positivity that it's almost become toxic positivity. I think a really important tenet of psychological safety is a leader's role modeling, telling the truth, even when the truth is uncomfortable to hear. Yep even when the truth sheds light on the fact that they've made mistakes themselves. Mm -hmm. 
And so that that role modeling, I think, is step number one, is leaders are able to demonstrate truth telling. They're able to talk about what's not working and they're not putting a positive spin on everything. So that's step one. Step two, there's some really great ways that you can use, like you can incentivize and incentivize truth telling in your team. So as a leader, let's say you're running a team meeting and one of your team members goes, I have these questions about this decision that we're making. There's something about it that's making me uncomfortable. And I want to talk about it. And instead of going, let's take that offline, you go, I would really love to hear about this because no one's brought up a contrary point of view and we really want to hear one. And you hear them, you give them the space to talk. And instead of trying to defend or explain in that moment, you really listen to what they're saying with open curiosity. And you reward them in front of everybody by either saying, like, I want more people to do this. I am so grateful you did this. And then again, you close the loop later with what did we do with that feedback you gave us? So I feel like there's a lot of like role modeling the leader themselves does a lot of truth telling and speaks about unpleasant truths. But then there's also you reward the people that speak the truth in your organization. You hold space for them to tell their truth without getting defensive. And you close the loop by telling people how that added value to the organization. Those are some amazing ways to bring psychological safety alive in organizations. Oh, those are great, great principles. So I'm going to pivot from the talent conversation to CPG world for a little bit and product innovation, because as, as we've talked about, one of the other aspects we uh, highlight as part of Gutsy Brands are those that stand behind bold ideas, even if they're not well understood or popular at the time. And you worked uh, well with P&G on the Ariel brand. And, you know, I was looking into this after we spoke and they had some pretty disruptive campaigns. So I'd love to hear about the insight behind those bold campaigns and what that really meant in that cultural moment. Yeah, well, so also to do some truth telling here, the the best campaigns on Ariel happened after I left the business. Fair enough, fair (laughs) enough. So, you know, here, and this is like the pre and post that I think is worth hearing. Before, I think the team uh, chanced upon those big insights and decided to turn them into campaigns. In, in the pre-world, we were still really fixated on product superiority. We were still all about, well, Ariel does a better job of getting rid of stains than the key competitor. And what are the torture tests or the gold standards for the toughest stains? Let's talk about them. It was still very functionally oriented. And listen, I believe more than anybody else in the power of functional superiority as the foundation to, to emotional connection. But it's the problem is that it's necessary, but not sufficient. And so we stopped at talking about functional superiority and there was just no resonance with our audience at the time. So we did okay, we didn't do great. And then like cut to cut to the future, I'm at LinkedIn and a colleague of mine from LinkedIn Asia starts to talk about examples of great campaigns. And she's talking about this aerial campaign it's called Share the Load. And for the, for our listeners who don't know what the campaign is, they can just go check out on YouTube, Ariel Shared the Load, and they'll see this campaign with subtitles in it. But the, the essence of the storyline is there's a working woman who has just come home from work and her father's visiting and he's there at the table and he can see that she's on a work call. And yet she's doing all of these other things around the house. She's making her husband a cup of tea. She's getting dinner ready. She's talking to her kids. And the husband's sitting on a couch watching television, enjoying his tea. And by the end of this ad, the father has this amazing insight of, I don't want my daughter to be in that position, but I realize that's the exact position I put my wife in every day of our marriage. And he vows to do better, goes back home and starts doing his own laundry. That's just like the overall storyline. 
what I think was so bold about this is this is a really well-known truth. And not just in the Indian cultural context, but even in the American cultural context, is that if you're a woman, somehow you're expected that you're going to balance work and what happens at home kind of seamlessly, but your husband gets to focus on thriving at work. And it was just so painful to watch what that woman is going through in that ad. But it was also a really brave thing for Ariel to do. Because when you pick a bold idea, you you endear yourself to one part of the population very deeply and you risk polarizing another part of the population very deeply. And so I'm sure there was a lot of backlash too, as much as they had a lot of support. But I think that's the whole point of a bold idea is you're willing to take a risk. And I just thought there was so much courage behind that campaign. And I think that really moved people. And now you have not just functional superiority, you have emotional resonance with this idea. So I thought it was the gutsiest move a brand in India could make. It's phenomenal. And we will include the link in our show notes for, for this campaign, because it's, it's so inspiring. And to your point about polarization, that's so core to the the idea of standing behind a bold idea, because if you're appealing to the entire world with a campaign, it's probably not that powerful, right? It's not that memorable. You have to be somewhat controversial. You have to be provocative and what we found in, in talking with people about this concept of standing behind bold ideas, it's about building the conviction in that idea. And if that conviction is grounded in something that coincidentally is tied to an empathetic understanding of the human experience, then it tends to be a really successful bold idea, right? But you have to have that conviction. And this is why I love CPG. It's like, it's laundry detergent that we're talking about. But it has this cultural, in your example, this cultural connection that's incredible. I mean, and there's no other industry I've found that can do that because every one of us interacts with consumer products every day, all day long. So there's a million moments and connections and opportunities for brands to make those connections. And I just, I just love it. So no offense to my non-CPG clients that are listening, but CPG is just special. It really is. (laughs) It really is. Yeah, the ubiquity and the access to these brands. I think every one of us can relate to this notion and not every one of us can relate to something B2B SaaS related. Right. right. Yeah. But uh, we'll talk more about B2B and, and as we're as we're conversating today. But so another aspect of gutsiness that we talk about is pioneering a new path or a new way of doing business. And I'm going to move back to talent for this, this conversation. When I think about how companies will evolve their recruiting, their onboarding, their retention efforts in the coming decades, I mean, of course, COVID turned things on its head with you know for, forcing a hybrid or a virtual work environment. And now we're seeing all sorts of outcomes from that. But even without the pandemic, right? Like it would be changing. The workforce would be changing. So I'd love to hear from you what foresight you might have into the the future of these these aspects of our work life. What should we be thinking about as employers? Um, What are some of the challenges we'll face? This is such a, oh, it's my favorite question in this whole conversation. Let's just start by saying that it's hard to predict what's going to happen, but I can tell you there's a couple of leading indicators that are already telling us what's going to happen in the world of work. One, One important one I think we're going to start seeing a pivot from hiring people based on their pedigree to hiring people based on their skills. And that is then going to enable a bunch of things to happen. One, when you start enabling hiring through a skills lens rather than a current experience lens, 
you're just going to open up your talent pool so much wider and you're going to get all sorts of different people into the mix. It's going to make hiring much easier for the customer. For the job seeker, I think it's going to open up more avenues to changing job functions, to changing industries, et cetera, because you're not defined by what you did. You're defined by what you can do in the future. So I call that whole like subcategory, the pivot to skills. You can also imagine what this is going to unlock for equity in the workplace. You're, you know, you're finding because you're not limiting your hiring to Ivy League schools, for example, or to top tier tech companies. You're now opening doors to talent that didn't have access to those great schools and those great companies because of their backgrounds. And so people without privilege can now enter the workforce and be at these amazing companies. So we call it skills-based hiring at LinkedIn. I'm a big, big believer. And I think there's a couple of foundations in technology that need to come to life to enable more skills-based hiring. A bunch of companies are working on that. So I think that's one of, one of the biggest pivots, a pivot from hiring for pedigree to hiring for skills. Another big pivot, I think is going to be, uh, this sounds woo-woo, but an emphasis on purpose and values you're starting to see more and more that Gen Z in particular have this conviction in in their beliefs and they want to work at companies that share that conviction. And so there's going to be a lot more like matching between employers and job seekers that starts to happen based on their shared values, their shared purpose, rather than just on, I want to find a job, I'm going to go work for this employer. So I definitely think values um, values, beliefs, all of those are going to start playing a bigger role in the workforce. They're just going to have to because that's where Gen Z is going to take us in the future. And then um, this is a controversial one, but if anybody wants to go look up more of a thesis on this, we had an amazing guest speaker named Caroline Wanga who showed up at Talent Connect, LinkedIn's talent event of the year. Caroline spoke about this concept that is still stuck in my brain. It's the fact that our focus should not be on retention. When we get obsessed with retaining people, we lose sight of the people Like some, that sometimes you have to let people go so they can become the best version of themselves. And they've hit their ceiling in your team or your organization. And so this obsession with wanting to retain people, um, it can get really myopic and it can lead to what we call empire builders, people who just want to hold on to the talent and hoard it in their organization. And so they'll try and keep the talent there at any cost versus thinking to themselves, how can I proactively think of the next play for this person that's going to tap into who they're starting to turn into because they've reached their maximum potential on my team. I just thought that was like a liberating thought. It is. And and that's, again, this is where I'm making notes because (laughs) I really want to embed this because I I've always personally believed, and I try to tell my, um, you know, my team just be as candid with me on where you are. If you're, if you're considering another job, I want to be the first to know so I can help you, right. I can be the reference for you. I can help coach you for how you're going to interview for that job. I want to be the person that helps you. And of course I'm in a first and foremost fight to keep you here because Mm. I want to know what you want to be doing. And I want to see if we can stretch and um, and that has worked, I think, well for me personally and, and the talent that I've been lucky enough to, to be a part of, but it is interesting to think about what Gen Z will, will do to, to that, that thinking, because, um, you know, people are changing jobs, I think more frequently and staying at companies for shorter periods of time. And that can be a challenge, but it's also for employers, it can be a challenge, but it's also an opportunity, right? Because you're bringing fresh thinking 
fresh points of view into the organization. I don't know. Do you have any words of wisdom for how to manage that dynamic kind of turnover that can be an opportunity and not a setback? Yeah, I have two words, internal mobility. If you want to keep great people in your larger organization, I think you can start to defocus on keeping them in your team, but you can start to focus on how can gut check or how can LinkedIn retain this person overall because a loss for my little team could be a win for the company at large. And that way we get to keep them here versus losing them somewhere else. And so internal mobility, again, if you're able to fix, focus on the skills this person has, that could take them into a bunch of other allied roles in the company. They get a win out of it. They get to learn something new, do a new job function, and you get a win out of it. The company gets to keep them and you still get to see them growing from afar. And hey, if you're lucky, and you know, if, if the stars align, someday they might say, you know, your team is the one I really wanted to be on. You're the leader I want to work for. So I'm coming back to you. Mm-hmm. So I feel like internal mobility juggles the best of those two worlds, keeping them on your team versus losing them to another organization. This way you can keep them in the organization and still find someone. Yep. No, that's a great, great opportunity. So let's stay on this topic of leadership because, um, you know, another aspect we highlight in terms of gutsy brands and gutsiness is this power of and, and that is finding opportunity where others might force trade-offs. And as I've interviewed leaders on this podcast, I found that the most successful leaders embody that trait and how they operate with their teams. So for example, Todd Kaplan with Pepsi or Tracy Holloma at Vital Proteins, which is part of Nestle, like somehow these leaders find a way to do the, you know, the business side of their job really well, right? They manage the metrics, they manage performance, but they also have this authentic and genuine emotional intelligence that inspires people around them. So people want to work for them. Um, they kind of went over the minds and the hearts, right? Of their team is how I think about it. So I know you have a passionate point of view on this. Um, how do you see the most successful leaders embody this kind of power of and idea? Remember how earlier we were talking about um, the best brands speak not just to your head, but also to your heart and your gut. I think the best leaders also know how to leverage their head. So the thinking side, their hearts, the feeling side and the gut, the instinctual side of leadership. And so they're able to analyze with their head, but they're also able to like listen with their heart and observe what's going on. Listen for the things that people are not seeing. And they're also able to use their gut you know, your intuition is built through years and years of experience as a leader. So they're able to rely on their gut and go, does this feel like a good idea? Or, or does do I sense that something is off here? And so I think that's one way the ant comes to life is leaders integrating all of those, those centers of decision-making, the head, the heart, and the gut. And I have found that those leaders are among the most powerful leaders versus the ones that overly rely either on their feelings or, or their thoughts. So that's a really powerful ant. Another really powerful ant I have observed is There's a lot of talk about compassion in the workplace right now. And I I think we've forgotten that the word compassion in itself includes boundaries and it includes accountability. And so I I always go back to Jeff Wiener, who was the OG CEO at LinkedIn. Jeff has a really great um, video on compassion. He talks about leadership compassion a lot. And he talks about the fact that if you were to manage out someone who's not a great fit for your team, like they're not thriving, they're not having a good time, you can see that. Compassion is finding the way to give them that honest feedback and helping them land their next play that is outside of your job. It it, it is not trying to keep them on your team and keeping them protected. So I feel like the and here is something to do with compassion and courage. 
in that, yes, compassionate leadership is really important, but compassionate leadership doesn't mean saying yes to everything. It doesn't mean standing for competent jerks in the workplace. It doesn't mean agreeing with everything your directs say. There is a strong element of boundaries and accountability that is woven into compassionate leadership. And I just think people get so tripped up on, well, but if I'm compassionate, how am I going to performance manage people? No, they're, they're not at odds with each other. You get to integrate the two. So those two I feel really, really strongly about because I think they get either misunderstood or not well-known enough in the workplace. Mm-hmm. One thing you snuck in there was the term competent jerks. So I wanted to just <laughs> highlight that. That's brilliant. But also I, I agree with you and I'm, I'm nodding my head because at, at Gut Check, we believe in radical candor and it just means I care about you. So I, I want to give you this feedback, even if it's tough to hear. And, um, you know, those, those folks tend to, to appreciate that even in the moment it's difficult, they reflect and realize I needed to hear that. Okay. I'm going to go back. I'm bouncing around between talent and innovation and your time at P&G. So I'm going to go back to that P&G experience when you were working on the always brand. I mentioned this already, but something that really inspires me with, with CPG is that you can actually change people's lives. You can actually create a more fulfilling experience through your product experience, which I just, I think is phenomenal. So on the always brand, you had a substantial challenge, uh, growing a, a category penetration in a really unique market. So I'd love for you to tell us how you approached that, because there's some very empathetic lessons, I think, in, in your strategy at the time. Well, so, you know, just for market facts and context, when I was working on the always brand, always is a brand of sanitary napkins, women use them when they're on their periods. And in India, back in the day, this is like the late 2000s, our market penetration for sanitary napkins was about 12 to 15%. This is to say only 12 to 15% of menstruating women in India at the time were using sanitary napkins to manage menstruation. The cultural context behind this is periods are a huge taboo. (laughs) Think about the power of and. On one hand, women are revered for their ability to be fertile and have children. And so in that sense, periods are really important because if you don't get your period, you can't have a baby. And then on the other hand, there's just a lot of stigma attached to when you're on your period, you can't touch things, you can't do things, and you are made to feel just not human in those moments. When a girl in a family uses sanitary napkins, it becomes like a really visible way for everybody to know that she's on her period and you want to try and hide the period as much as you can. And so that's one part of why they're not encouraged. Napkins are not encouraged. Another part of it is just pricing. Like a lot of the market is just priced out of sanitary napkins. But the cultural stigma and taboos are a really big headwind to market penetration, to put it very simply. And you can't fight culture with facts, so to speak. (laughs) So so we had to tap into what are we going to enable for these girls if we're able to get them on these sanitary napkins. And we had to get deep into what's happening in their day-to-day life when they're on their periods and not using a napkin. What are the consequences And you start to realize that, you know, all of these parents, they want their kids to go to school. They want their girls to succeed and to have futures. But when they're on their period, these girls have to stay home. It's just impossible to go to school if you're using cloth as your napkin. You're going to leak. It's going to be embarrassing, etc. And so we realized that the ultimate insight was without the right tools, most of these girls are going to miss days at school. And that's going to add up over the year. It sets them back academically. And we don't know education is important to these parents. And so that became the core insight we went after, uh, both for the girls and for their parents. That was like a big part of how we leveraged empathy. And then I think like a really big, bold idea PNG started in India was the school program. We realized that 
at least for big cities, if you get to school and you get a pad in the hands of young girls, you educate them on periods because it's an awkward conversation at home. You equip them emotionally and physically to deal with their first period when it comes their way. And now you have a customer for life, you know, because you made it easy for them, that first really, really hard moment. And so to me, it was like those two things really stood out. The way we created empathy by understanding what the real cultural blocker was and what we could enable for these girls. And that had to do with the whole missing school insight. And then this, this bold pioneering way of getting into the school program, getting the pad in their hands before their first period even arrived. And that way we became their support system in case their mothers were not willing to talk to them about their periods. I just love that story. I have to say, um, it's, it's inspiring in so many ways. And, um, as I'm thinking about the multiple layers of understanding your team had to, to, to achieve and develop, what were some of the ways that you uncovered that? Cause you were in an insights role at that time, right? Yeah, I was, we traveled to rural areas. Basically, we just went to these really small towns to speak to these girls. And, you know, when you go there, it's, you see so much that you don't realize from far away in your air-conditioned office. The one thing you realize is they don't even have access to bathrooms inside the house sometimes. Their bathrooms are outside. And so how are you now going to sneak a napkin into the bathroom to go change? We realize there are no uh, there are no trash cans in bathrooms in India. They're somewhere in the kitchen usually, which means someone has to make the trek to dispose of. We realized all of these nuances and, and then we realized our product had to had to do things as well. So you had a little thing that you could hide the napkin in so you could dispose of it discreetly. It just, yeah, we visited a lot of these folks. We spoke to them in the context of their lives and and we realized there's a lot of privilege even we were sitting on, even though we grew up in India, uh, that our life as Indian girls were very different from the lives of a lot of these girls growing up in small towns. Wow. So powerful to, to observe those experiences and really kind of unpack them at a level where you could understand all the parts along that journey and that experience pathway that you had to get the product solution, right? Yeah. I just, I find that really inspiring. So thank you for sharing that. Okay. So now we're going to do our first, uh, quick lightning round. This is where I want you to think about brands or campaigns that you have either admired as a professional or just as a consumer, right? So this is all about your, your point of view. Um, what is a brand or a campaign that really has demonstrated empathy? You know that there's a lot of layoffs happening in tech right now. And yesterday, I think Stripe, the payment processing company, laid off a bunch of employees. Layoffs are difficult always. But um, I saw on LinkedIn the email that the CEO of Stripe had written to their employees. I thought that was like a masterclass in empathy. So uh, I can share that with you. We can put that in the show notes, Jess, so folks can read it. Here are a couple of things I think it does really well. It calls out the facts. It doesn't beat around the bush. It's apologetic. But most importantly... I think he takes responsibility for the decisions that he made that led to them having to make these operational decisions. Uh, And there's also a lot of compassion in the way that they handle severance, medical benefits, et cetera, for the people that are being laid off. I just, in those difficult moments is when you see people's true self. And I I just thought it was a masterclass in empathy. I highly recommend it. Yes, I definitely want to see that. Um, That's a great example. What about a brand or a campaign that's been particularly pioneering? I don't know how many people know about the REI Opt Outside campaign. Mm. Black Friday is such a big deal in America. And we talk so much about wanting to protect our workers and so on and so forth. And yet every time there's a Black Friday sale, there are consumers flocking to these large stores. 
not asking themselves, well, then who's making this happen for me, if not the workers at these corporations? I thought Ari, I did a really brave job uh, taking a stand and basically saying our people are not going to work. And hey, you know, in fact, we're, in, we're going to encourage all of you to take that time to be outside instead of in, inside a store shopping for discounted goods. I thought it was a really powerful move. And it was pioneering because they did it at a cost to themselves. Not bringing footfalls into your store is an actual bottom line impact. That is real courage for me. Yeah, that's a great example. What about one that uh, stood behind a bold idea, if, even if not well understood or popular at the time? Uh, I don't know how many people have watched the Always Like a Girl campaign. It, it can get some mixed reactions. I get that. But again, because, because I grew up as a girl in India and I got told often what I couldn't do because I was a girl and it only strengthened my resolve. I just really loved seeing that campaign. It made me realize, number one, girls in America are hearing the same messages that girls in India are hearing. But it was so bold and basically saying, hey, you know, doing something like a girl does not mean doing it worse. It could mean doing it really, really well. I thought it was really powerful for young girls who were probably watching it. So I felt like that was a really bold idea. Okay. What about a brand or a campaign that embodies this power event that I love that you really know what that means? So what what, do you, what brand or campaign comes to mind? Well, it's so LinkedIn's recent campaign on um, being professional. So this... For a long time in our in our vocabulary in corporate America, being professional is associated with dressing a certain way, having your hair a certain way, talking a certain way, et cetera. And there's something about LinkedIn just unlock the power of and in that you can be yourself, your whole self, and you can be regarded as a respectable professional. Um, and it's possible to do both of those things. So I, I just really love their campaign because they showcase people um, that are either donning hairdos or makeup or clothes that obviously don't deter from them doing their job effectively, but in the past were considered unprofessional. And they basically just reframe the whole thing to be all of these things are professional and more highly recommend. Yeah, that sounds great too. And it it's it's crazy how much that's changed in the past couple of decades. And one of my first jobs, I remember being told by our HR manager that we should wear makeup. And it's just such an incredible, you look back to those times, it's like watching eighties movies where you're like, oh my God, we used to say some stuff that you know we should just not say anymore. Um, but that's an important uh, evolution, I think. Okay. This is spill your guts. This is the all about you. So you just do you, uh, what's the first brand you remember as a child? Cadbury's chocolate so you know Cadbury's dairy milk I think most Indian kids will tell you this they had some iconic advertising back in the like late 80s early 90s and it was about the taste of life that was the the tagline for the campaign it was always these Cadbury's gets inserted into some sort of really special moment in somebody's life and it just brings goosebumps and tears to anybody who watches it so most memorable advertising that's super nostalgic I like that what book or movie best represents your career journey you know, when I worked at Procter, I don't think I laughed very much. And I think I've really embraced humor in my um, in my 40s now that I'm here at LinkedIn. Yeah, you're over it. You're like, I need to laugh. I need now. to laugh now. And I think such an essential part of good leadership is humor. That's a whole other conversation. But so a book that really encapsulates this is um, there's an author named Richard Osman, who's British. And he um, he writes this book about the Thursday Murder Club. And there's a there's a series of three books so far. It's about a group of retirees in their 70s and 80s who live in a little retirement village in the UK. 
and they're solving murder mysteries and they call themselves the Thursday Murder Club. I just think it's so like it's so it's so representative. It took me a very long time in my life to not take myself seriously and to laugh at work. And I feel like those retirees are just like showcasing humor, having fun and doing really important things like solving murders all at the same time. I love it. You're giving me such a list of things to check out. I love it. Um, I love this next question for you. How would you describe your job to a child? You know how people doing jobs is really important to them because they get to they get to do something they really love. They get to be competent and smart and they get to earn money. And what I do is I basically help companies find give jobs to people and then I help them get those people to grow and become better and better by learning new skills. You make the world go around. That's what that, that description sounds like. That's so cool. <laughs> I'm so jealous. Um, what's one piece of advice you would give a business leader who is trying to embody some of these characteristics of gutsiness we've talked about? I think embracing the tension is an important one. It's very similar to the power of and. You can have seemingly opposing ideas, but when you're able to take them and kind of bring them together and figure out where the magic lies and the tension between those ideas, that, that's that's really where I think you're able to push the edges of, of brands. So embrace the tension would be my advice. I love it. And that will very likely become our episode title. That's fantastic. <laughs> um, what is the most used emoji on your phone? What's that emoji where someone's laughing out loud, like there are tears coming out and you're laughing really yeah. loud? That yeah. One. So I, I do a lot of like, LOL, LOL and the laugh emoji. Yep. Is it one of the emojis or do you do like two or three? This is important. <laughs> it's actually not, but I just always ask. <laughs> it's just one. Just one. Okay. Good. That's, that's fair. Um, and finally we have an epic playlist for gutsiest brands. Uh, I want you to check it out, but we ask each of our podcast guests to add a song. So what song would you add to our playlist? <laughs> Um, it's called Build Me Up Buttercup. Have you heard it? Yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, and so, you know, the words go, why do you build me up buttercup? Um, <laughs> why do you build me up buttercup, baby, just to let me down? Mess me around and the most of all. So it's, it's about this oh notion of you. I love that you just sang that. That was awesome. <laughs> oh my God. And you have a great voice. Yeah. Wow. I was like, I'm just going to say the lyrics, but I couldn't remember them unless I sang. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, so I think it's just this point of you sell people to things, but then you don't follow through on the promises that you've made as a brand. And the song just like encapsulates, why do you build me up, Buttercup, just to let me down? Mm-hmm. Uh, worst of all, you turn around. And so it's it's the song about don't let down your customer. If you put them at the center of your branding, you also have to put, put them at the center of your product experience so they can come back to you as a renewing customer. <laughs> that was a, an awesome tie to gutsiness. And again, like the best rendition I've heard of that song. You have a beautiful voice. Um, I have so enjoyed this conversation. I cannot wait for our listeners to learn from you and hear your passion and your energy. So I'm so pleased that I know you, Suda, and that I get to interact with you. So hopefully we can chat again soon, but thanks for being here on our podcast. Thank you for enabling this amazing conversation. Again, I learned so much too, especially about the pillars that make Pagazzi brands. Uh, I'm excited for this episode too. Yeah. Well, thanks again, Suda. I appreciate it. 
Thank you. Wow, Jess, that was a fantastic interview. Suda is wonderful. I was really like taken with her. I mean, she has such thoughtful responses, clear convictions, and so many suggestions or tools rather that we can take into our work life. Yes. And as I mentioned in the interview, she and I have worked together in the past. And in the past year, I've had the opportunity to interview her a couple of times. And I have a confession to make. Are you ready? Ready to hear this? I'm ready. It is really a cognitive challenge for me to process her comments without thinking deeply about the implications to me and my life. Like, I feel like what she says, it hits me so, so powerfully that I'm processing like, oh my gosh, how do I, how do I take this back? How do I do this differently in my team meeting? Or, Ooh, do I do that? Like, do I have a toxic positivity vibe? (laughs) And I'm spending that like cognitive thought without like going, no, I'm in an interview. I need to like you know, ask her <laughs> questions so that she can impart wisdom to our listeners, not just to me. So like, I feel like a student taking notes in class, but I truly learned so many things from her today. I did too. I think we all kind of felt like a student in class taking notes, jotting those down. Now I have a million thoughts and I'm sure you do too. So let's jump right into it. What are today's takeaways? So I think the entire conversation today was laden with empathy, truly across each example, uh, whether we were talking about talent or we were talking about CPG product innovation, but a couple that really hit me were in the talent discussion, because as you know, Em, I'm pretty passionate about this and, you know, I, my role as a leader, I take very seriously. So I I really, a couple of them really stepped out to me. Um, One was this idea of psychological safety and giving people the space for them to be their authentic selves, to share the problems that they're facing, share the tough input and feedback and not face penalty, right. To have this, like the psychological safe zone where they can do that. And I think that it's so important and also something that can get, can get lost when people are just trying to do their day-to-day jobs. Yeah. And the other part that, again, I was like feeling so seen was this whole idea of retention and you know, how we really should be less worried about retention and more worried about ensuring that people are living their best professional lives. And that is so true. Um, and and so I'm going to take that one. I'm going to take that to heart and think about how I can reframe my mindset around that because it shouldn't just be about retention. It should be about ensuring people, um, you know, have a space and a role that allows them to illustrate their gifts. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. And I always appreciate that about my leaders when I can see that they care more about my success and growing my skills versus like keeping you on your team. It's uh, refreshing. But I also felt really connected when she mentioned internal mobility and I'm very passionate about this as well. And in a previous life, I watched a colleague apply for a position on another team and the manager wouldn't let them go. And it, and they ended up leaving altogether. So it's like the company missed out because somebody was so concerned about keeping those skills on their team. So it, it's just kind of a, a life lesson there, I think. Yeah. And, and obviously at gut check, we're going through a process where we're being acquired by Toluna, which will, you know, mean a lot of changes for our employee base. And, you know, I'm, I'm really hopeful that this concept of internal mobility will be one that we get Mm -hmm. to all experience moving forward. So good timing for you and I to kind of hear that, that wisdom from, from Suda for sure. Um, And I think another takeaway for me is, you know, I love the, the standing behind bold ideas, characteristic of, of gutsiness and 
PNG and having the courage to tackle a really touchy cultural topic um, through their uh, share the load campaign. And if you haven't seen it, please do look it up. It is, it's, it's a really inspiring set of, of ads that I watched and, you know, it tackles women's roles in the household and the workplace. That is a very touchy subject. And I loved Suda's comment. You can't fight culture with facts. <laughs> it was just so <laughs> brilliant. It's like, you can't. So you have to appeal emotionally. And, and again, we're talking about laundry detergent, but we're appealing, we're appealing so emotionally to that human experience. I mean, it's just so powerful. That one I will remember. And I'm going to retell that story. Yeah. I mean, that's a genius campaign because you're right. It is a cultural topic, but it also spans many cultures and it really is something a lot of us can relate to. But as Suda mentioned, it can be polarizing, which means pushing part of your audience away, even though you might be bringing in more. So it's a big risk, big reward situation. Yeah. And I love polarization strategies, frankly, like (laughs) I think that they tend to be some of the most memorable campaigns. And, you know, as we've done now, dozens of these interviews at this point, so many of the brands that get mentioned, um, as great examples, they are controversial. They're going to be polarizing. Um, and, and it's important. So those are the fun ones to talk about. And they're the ones we like to watch and continue to talk about. So clearly they're doing something right. Exactly. Exactly. And I have to say her, the sharing of the, the always brand story, it it truly almost had me in tears. I mean, if we, if you think about the, the foundational human experience at the core of their target audience and understanding that on a deep level, if I think about like the developmental, the emotional, the societal impact of helping young women navigate their menstruation, it is life-changing right? It really is. And it, it started with understanding that actual experience. And so I, my hat is off to the, the insights team and brand team that's, that Suda was a part of at that time. You have to be highly skilled, highly motivated to uncover that many layers of insight. And this is one of the reasons I'm so proud to be in this industry is like, that is really special. And that led to really important experiences for those, those young women. It's just amazing. That was really reminiscent of your conversation with Brandon Larson from Microsoft when he talked about interviewing people who experienced impotence. And it's a sensitive topic, but it needed a full understanding of that emotional experience to really be able to market a product to these people or to build a product. Yep. And I love too the tie that they realized to parents, um, the, the young girl's education was really important. Yeah. So what, what better way to kind of remove some of the stigma and educate, um, about menstruation by tying it to education. I mean, just so brilliant. It just connected so many different dots and it it truly was inspiring to me. So overall, I think from Suda's, you know, expert point of view on talent and how our workplace is evolving her experience with deeply connecting to people through your brand. And perhaps my favorite part, her singing the lyrics to (laughs) build me up buttercup. This was just a delightful conversation and definitely an embodiment of gutsiness. Thanks again for listening to the Gutsiest Brands podcast. Check out the show notes for links to some of the things Suda mentioned, including the Stripe layoff email, Jeff Weiner's video on compassionate leadership, and the Share the Load campaign. 
Don't forget, if you need a little bit of music in your life to pump you up and get gutsy, go to the Gutsiest Brands playlist on Spotify to check out all the recommended songs from the amazing guests of our show. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to leave us a five-star review and share the episode with a friend. See you next time.